0: Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Amaro, Ron Hayes, and Jason
1: Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed. Everyone's ready but Mark. As usual. As usual. (laughs)
2: I'm wearing pants
1: going to get a doing a little catch up episode. I'm catching up with what these three have been doing or are about to do. And I'm doing the same thing that I was doing last time when we said that I didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) But first, right out of the gate. We're going to lead it out with some pro tips today. We haven't done pro tips in a while. We've had some fantastic interviews, so we've been missing these. And uh, I'm, I'm getting some feedback from folks. So we're going to throw out some pro tips. And Michael Morrow, you're on the spot because you're the one that's been out shooting the most.
2: Mine is kind of a lame one and it harkens back to our last episode. But I just am more and more convinced every day that my pro tip is go buy an R5. Go buy a Canon R5. You'll be happy. This thing is like money. I tell you what, every time, every day, I learn something new. We just did a podcast earlier with uh, for our Nampa thing, which I don't know if we have even put it out there, but we're doing this another little podcast series, and we recorded the first one. It's going to go on this network, so you're going to hear it on The Wild and Exposed, so it's yet to come, probably 1st of October. But we had a previous guest on that particular podcast, Chaz, and he's a canon explorer of light. So we got into a little conversation about the R5s, and he actually said something during the podcast that made me think, but my point to all that is is I'm learning every day something new and just something cool that this camera will do, right? One of the coolest things that I've, that I've had happen with the new camera is, well, not had happen, but it just does it. It just works this way. In the old days, if you switch between stills and video, unless you set up all your custom functions, if you went from stills that you might be shooting at 1,250, one two fiftieth of a second at five six iso 800 you switch to video you're at the same settings right so then you got to go in and change your settings to if you're trying to shoot cinematically you're going to set it so that you are at twice the the frame rate for your shutter speed so it took time it's just like going back to the old no tripod days well this camera you just switch between the modes and it holds whatever settings you had for the last session that you were in that particular whether you're shooting video or stills. So just little things like that that just are speeding up the process. It just sells me more and more every day on this this little camera. I still haven't put it through its paces as far as weather and cold and things like that, but everything that I've had it going through so far has been pretty amazing. Pretty amazing.
1: I want to comment on that because we got some negative feedback on our last podcast. And it was primarily because we didn't do comparisons to the Sony. Now, first of all, the Sony a7s3 is not out yet, we can't get that in our hands. Secondly, the biggest advantage for a wildlife photographer with the Canon currently is still lens selection because you can use the EF mount glass, which is phenomenal glass. And you can use the RF mount glass. So you have some options. Sony still has, with their long zoom, it's a great lens, very sharp lens. But again, at the long end, it's f6.3. So that's what we're talking about. You know, with the Canon 200 to 400, you still have the ability to shoot at f4. I am not, and we are not at all knocking the Sony system we have a lot of friends that use it very successfully this just opens up some options and allows for a little bit more selection so
2: well, and I have the Sony, and I have the Canon, so I have them both, and I could do a comparison side-by-side, side, you know. Can't do a comparison
1: to the a7S Three yet, because nobody's got it in their hands.
2: No, but I think that would be hard to compare, so, too, right? Because I would, no, it's wouldn't not a dream of yeah. shooting that camera for stills. I would shoot it for video, and I think it, it's going it to be is pretty awesome. a video awesome.
1: camera. Sony said it was a video camera. Right. And so it, it is the Mac Daddy, but for a hybrid system you know and i'm not knocking any of the other sony cameras either the a9 is phenomenal a7s 3 4 a7 3 all great cameras this just gives you more flexibility in shooting and i think a little bit more cinematic potential for the on the video as well well
2: i think it gives you more if you're a canon shooter if you have that yeah, glass, you know exactly that's the big thing. Because not very many people they're going to switch completely from a Nikon or from a Sony are even going to have that glass. So stay with what you got. I mean, if you got a 100 to 400 Sony or a 200 to 600 and you like it, stay with it. Yeah. If you're wanting to experiment or you have a lineup of Canon glass, my pro tip is buy the buy the R5. You won't regret it.
1: Yeah, and you guys cost me. Actually, not you guys. You, Mike, to get to pick up uh, 200 two hundred to four hundred at a really good price because that individual who shall remain nameless. Because I still like him, even though he decided he's gonna.
2: Oh, he's hang not gonna on to it,
1: it. He has decided that he's gonna look at the R five before he gets rid of that glass. Smart Thanks to person whoever Michael that is. Tomorrow. Yeah. Well, thank didn't, you. Didn't I appreciate we kind of it.
3: Mentioned that in the last pod, we kind of mentioned that in the last one, didn't we? I think that the prices are going to start to increase, and people are going to <laughs> stop trying to sell them. I, you know, and that we happened. Have jumped on it I, sooner.
1: I was yeah. looking on Lens Authority today, and they have gone up a thousand bucks. Yeah. I bet it's release just of that keeps going game. up. Yep. Mhm. You know,
0: and something for our audience: there are four of us here, and we have colleagues in the field that all shoot different types of equipment. We can simply share what we have and the experiences that we have. And thankfully, Michael was one of the first to get his hands on an R5, is in Alaska, in the field, and able to put it to use. So it was with enthusiasm that we were able, or Michael was able, to do this review and share it. It was not to shelve any other camera company. There's no sponsorship. You know, we, we, we all have... For the most part, we have different brands and are successful with different brands. And this is an exciting piece of equipment and technology that's come out this month that we we're able to give some insight on because Michael had his hands on one right out of the gate. And that was that was why and, we
1: were... And was in account. a great spot to test it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, and
2: that being said, I have the Sony and I don't plan on selling it. I Because I we use it for a lot of the commercial work and a lot of the guys that I hire actually have the sony i just feel like it's better to have consistent cameras across the board there so i'm i'm not dissing that system at all i i just had the canon glass got got a hold of the camera and i feel like it works and if you're on the fence i just my pro tip is buy it but <clears throat> i really don't care what camera i have i think you can make and that came up in the earlier podcast today too it's not about the camera ultimately i mean there's things that make it easier but it's all about Just take the dang picture.
0: There's so many elements right to the whole experience and so much of this technology is changing overnight. It's just taking the opportunities to create outstanding images and, and putting it in more people's hands. It's easier now than ever to create outstanding work and which is great for everybody. But there are many cameras that do it. But it's just exciting to see, you know, this the R5 mirrorless camera, what it brings to the table. It brings so much in that small little piece of equipment. And honestly, I I felt the excitement, and I still may end up putting my hands on one. I'm waiting to hear from a couple of friends' reviews on the 1-500. to But I have held back because I'm not traveling quite as much this fall. I will be shooting a lot, but not as much as normal. And I'm hearing rumors about another camera company that I've been with for a long time with stuff coming out next year. And some of those are pretty tantalizing from what I'm hearing in the rumors. So I don't need it today. It'd be nice to have the technology that the R5 brings to the table in my hands today for upcoming photo shoots. But there's Nikon's got some stuff brewing from what I hear. And so I'm, I'm on the fence. I look forward to seeing the cameras firsthand with some friends uh, at West soon and and see what more, uh, up closer to the cameras and what they're getting and, and, and get more feedback that way too. But like you said, Michael, yeah. I mean, I don't have any camera, Canon, sorry, lenses. So I'd simply be buying one or two to go with this camera. And I don't wanna switch all over, but for most of what we do, I mean, I can, it's not ideal to have different brands because of different menu systems and setups, but, you know, you can have one of each. Anyway, I'm rambling on. I'm on the fence at the moment, but hopefully, the rumors I'm hearing are true about another company. But it will take some time to verify that.
2: Did I say the downside to the R5? Did we talk about downsides on that last podcast? I can't remember.
0: I I don't know, but I I don't I
1: I don't. You started with I ordered another one, so I don't no, think we I, mentioned too many downsides except I don't, for the menu system.
2: Well, and I I don't even the only mind thing the menu was the system.
0: tracking. But that was something I was going yeah. to mention on my Nikon on the fence pro tip for today. But other, other than that, I don't remember you saying anything as far as the downside. So
2: here's the downside that I figured out. It can be fixed with money, but, you know, who has tons of expendable income? I'm running the fastest Mac laptop as of whatever this year, right? The end of or the beginning of this year. So they may have a fast one out now. I'm not sure. But it was as fast as you could get in January. I cannot play the 4K footage. That's just a kind of a bummer. You know, you just can't. Not even the 4K. No. The 4K HQ, I can't. I haven't shot in 4K, regular 4K at all. I just shoot everything in 4K HQ. And my computer just won't. You know, you import the clips into uh, Premiere. And then try to play it. It'll play like the first three or four seconds. And then it just stops. So the workaround is you just go in and create proxies. You edit with your proxies. And a proxy, if you don't know what that is, it just makes a smaller file. So then you got more time and more hard drive space because you you got your original files. And then you got to make a different file that's smaller that you can edit with. And then you can take that timeline and then just replace it. When you get your final video, you can replace it with all the high-quality footage and export it. Once you export it, it's fine, but it's going to compress it you know, for a YouTube or for a Vimeo or for whatever you're going to do. But this particular computer won't do it. I know you could Sounds go out like and buy the new iMac. Sounds a simple
1: process, though. It's not hard.
2: Yeah, I actually haven't done it. I actually, I've done it before, but I'm going to need to go watch a YouTube video to figure out how to create the proxies. But the downside is I'm going to have to buy more hard drive space, right? Normally, I can get through a two, three, four month, Time in Alaska with shooting with one 8-terabyte drive is my main drive and just backups. So I don't think I could do it if I start making proxies. I don't know. I, I don't know. How, I guess it depends on how big these proxies are and how much you shoot, too, right?
1: That is an issue.
2: But yeah. So it's that cost thing, right? You cannot view. Now, I think that'll change in the next couple of years. Computers get cheaper. Everybody's upgrading. Well, most people upgrade computers. So, I mean, it's just going to naturally... And I've dealt with this problem the whole time. Red, you can't do the same. I can't watch it with red. I can watch it at 116th resolution, but um, that's just the way it goes. But that's the only downside I've found so far that just is kind of frustrating. Because it'd be cool. I mean, when you're editing a project, it's just super cool to see the actual footage and how sharp it is. And, you know, make sure you're telling that right story based off the footage that you have rather than looking at a really pixelated low res version and saying, is that totally sharp? I don't know. You know, that kind of thing. You're just, but you can solve it with the proxies. Or a
1: $30,000 computer.
2: Well, I think you could probably do it for 10. You know, if you bought the new (laughs) iMac and then loaded it up and I'm totally guessing there, I don't know how much they cost. I I would assume 10 by the time you put the higher, better graphics card in it, get the solid state drives, get the fastest, most RAM that you can put in it. And then the iMac itself, I would assume. You know, or you could go buy the Hot Rod, which, you know, Apple what last year they came out with that super fast. Um, but
1: what trash that's can. fifty grand, right?
2: Oh yeah, I don't even know. You share that <laughs> with fifty of your closest friends, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't even know how much those are. I think you could get one for sixteen or seventeen thousand. All right, back to earth. <laughs> yeah, back to reality. <laughs> jason do
1: you have a yeah. pro tip
3: so this last weekend and this i'll say what i was doing i was out shooting this last weekend and i had my sony and on the last episode i talked about potentially looking at the r5 and selling my sony for some of the issues that i found with the sony just personal things um you know it's interesting so i kind of made the decision why well, not kind of i made the decision to go ahead and get that r5 in the 100 to 500 and give it a shot And I did sell my Sony and my two to 600. But as I got home from that trip, just to kind of touch on how similar these systems are and how good they all are, I'm looking at my images and the kid shows up that's buying my camera. And I was actually very pleased with most of the images I was getting from my camera or from my shoot. And I was having a really, really hard time um, making that actual decision to sell him that Sony camera. It was actually really hard to let go of it. So um, we'll see what happens. Who knows? But um, so right now I've sold my Sony and I'm looking to get an R5 in my hands with that 100 to 500. So we'll see how that goes. As far as my own personal pro tip, um, you know, there's times when you're in the field and you're you're wanting to get low on the ground. And a lot of times you're either laying on the ground on your stomach or you're sitting on the ground or you're kneeling down. And a lot of times for me, because I'm old, um, laying on my stomach starts to hurt my back after a while. Kneeling down, my knees just aren't made for kneeling. I've proven that time and time again. If I kneel down for about five minutes, I can't get up. And sitting down can be very uncomfortable on your back. So I've come up with a solution when when you don't have to be mobile. So, for example, if you're in a blind or you're shooting grouse or something like that, um, they actually make turkey chairs. And they're very similar. They call it beach chair, turkey chair whatever you want to call it, but they're a really, they're a very comfortable chair that's that tilts back just a touch and they're made for, um, you know, beach going and Turkey hunting and things of that nature. And you can set that thing right on the ground and it gives you a really good low perspective and it makes it very comfortable. I've used one of those for shooting grouse and some different things and, uh, shooting the owls, the burrowing owls and super, super comfortable, super easy. They're about 20 bucks a piece. And I sat there for two or three hours at a time and never had a single problem. So very comfortable. So that's my pro tip. Something else that you can maybe pick up and add to your photography gear bag um, for certain types of shoots. It doesn't come in handy if you have to be mobile. But if if
2: you're going to just be sitting there, it's a great solution. I'm a huge proponent of that. Anytime I know where I'm going to be in one place, I always take a chair of some sort, you know, no matter what. If you want to get low, a regular, you know, camp chair doesn't work very good. But it just makes you sit longer right it just gives you that much more opportunity to just wait it out and wait for that whatever you're waiting for
3: yeah yeah, yeah especially if you don't want to be moving if your subject is sensitive to movement and that you know if the longer you can stay comfortable and stay still the better off you're going to be too so it works
0: really good too if you put a ghillie suit on right mark yeah and I was gonna say I mean it's too bad it's today's story on Instagram but you know Michael Morrow was showing us how you can be really comfortable in the field as well <laughs> you just lay down on some on some tundra some, yeah on some moss yeah I'll put that up again the day this podcast comes out if I remember just just so people can visit that
2: <laughs> that is it's one uns- of the nice things about Alaska and it's just about anywhere you lay down it's nice cushy tundra I mean it's Pretty easy to catch a little Med- nap. Meditate, meditate, yeah. and bring on the zen. <laughs> yes,
0: but ghillie suits are fun for sure.
1: And Thank those you. turkey chairs, Jason, they're great to have, but when somebody else is using it, and then <laughs> you have to kneel, it doesn't do you any good at all. So yeah, I I can relate on both. I love the turkey chairs. <laughs> But when you let the Canadian steal it, when he's down as a guest, you know, photographing in your area. So harsh. And he's taking a (laughs) nap, and you're you're switching (laughs) knees that you have to kneel on every 15 seconds.
0: (laughs) I like I remember you handing it to me, saying, here, try this. I don't remember sneaking into your garage and putting it. That's because
1: we were trying to keep you awake from the day before when you were sleeping in the snow. Oh, it
0: was so comfortable, though. (laughs) And yeah, that fresh snow. It was so cold. And I had my new down mittens. Those are fantastic. <laughs> I had a good pair of down mittens that fold up and stick in your pockets. There's some new ones out that uh, the ones I have are made by Kuyu. And seriously, lifesavers. I've never had mittens where my hands, you know, all of you have filmed it. I could spin this into the pro tip for today.
1: There all you of go. you
0: who have filmed out in the winter, at some point will get freezing fingertips whether you use those mitts with the fingers exposed, whether your hands are exposed, you're touching metal here and there, or just the wind chill, I've never had something where I put my hands in that's not heated somehow and and warmed them up within a minute. That being said, Chaz earlier today, his gloves that are out there now sound like they are pretty sweet. And I don't have a pair of those to have tested, but I know there, I have friends that do. They're
1: awesome.
3: Yep. I have a pair. They work very well.
1: <laughs> and They're a really out, good product. They've been out for years, actually, but they are continuing to improve and make it friendlier for the photographer. They heat you right back up, too. I mean, I was to the point where I thought probably on the borderline frostbite and just threw my fingers back in zipped it up, and I was warm again, and, you know, within a minute or two. Photograph or film and sheep last winter.
0: Where do people find them? What's his website again?
1: Uh, heat three systems or heat systems is the. the I'll website. put a link in the
2: show notes. He told yeah. us yeah. that. Yeah. That's yeah. Because that, that, he said they totally revamped that that uh, website too. So. Yeah. But yeah, I have a pair and they are amazing. And there's a How Canadian. We'll what? put
1: the Canadian Canadian link and. There's a Canadian yeah. link, and I don't have a pair. U.S. link.
2: <laughs> I bet you could call Chaz up and. One hundred eighty-nine sort of
1: dollars. You can get a pair.
0: This is a test to see if Chaz Charles Glatzer listens to our podcast on a weekly basis. <laughs> if so, <laughs> just saying, Chaz, potential ambassador. Okay.
2: <laughs> that was um, a good pro tip, though.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, it's like a half a pro tip. I have an, another one that is something that one of our listeners brought up and and emailed about I, quite a few this week and there's some at some at some point I would like to get into those emails a little bit more but was just wanted to touch base and, and point out and on the r5 and again I don't have an r5 right now but after the last the last podcast where Michael was talking about the difficulty that I had finding and, and tracking animals' eye when there's not a lot of contrast was just to make sure that, you know, when you go in the menu system, that it has an animal eye setting and a, a human eye setting. Now, Michael and I talked earlier and he did confirm that it was on the animal eye setting, but I bring it up just for you, those of you who may sh- photograph people or, or video people and animals to be aware of that difference and to make sure you have it on the right setting when you're using it. I have a, another friend. So many people have picked up this R5. Lots haven't, I'm not just saying that, but um, another guy I know picked one up, actually no, he was shooting the R6 and he had that on Facebook and Instagram of waterfowl and he was saying he was super impressed with the tracking on the waterfowl that he was photographing. So just be aware in the menu system there is a difference between photographing people and animals for the eye tracking setup.
2: Good one. You know, you got to remember the other way too because if you're Got it on animal animal setting and you go photograph people, you want to switch it back.
0: Well, you don't want the people you're photographing when you look at the image and show it to them and they look like a look like a bear or a zebra or a giraffe, right?
1: I guess it depends on the person you're photographing, but we'll leave it at that.
0: And if there's a ghillie suit involved.
1: All right, so I've just got a quick one and since I have been stuck where these guys have been out, I've been stuck. I've done a lot of re editing. Ah, uh, gone through some images that I've edited in the past, and and your, you know, as time goes by, your editing skills, your tastes, your, your kind of, uh, uh, what would you call it, your style changes a little bit, and so I've gone back through several images, actually several thousand images, and done some re-edits on those, and um, I would say that I've I've come up with a few things, and I think it would probably make a good YouTube video just to do, you know, my top five tools in Lightroom uh, for editing wildlife. But I, I want to challenge you guys as you're editing to try out some brushes, utilize the brushes and utilize the luminosity masking capabilities or color masking capabilities in Lightroom. It's the more and more they grow and the more advantages you know they add to lightroom you still cannot work in layers so there's still you know like mark primarily um edits in photoshop and there's still times where you have to go into photoshop uh, but they've added more and more tools into lightroom that have made it kind of a one-stop shop and uh, you know just enhanced what's already there so i would say you know use those brushes find just these little subtle nuances you know you've got everything lit well on this elk except maybe a cheek so just go in add a little brush to the cheek of this elk and then just add a little bit of light to it you don't want light added to the entire image but that one spot is going to make a big difference in your in your finished product so those are that you know that's just one potential area where that could be utilized but the uh, the luminosity and color masking capabilities have been a game changer with that software. So if you are somebody that likes to go in and you know I don't I don't edit every image heavily, I don't edit many images heavily, but where I have found I can I can get through an image pretty fast with the tools that are in Lightroom right now, and I think that probably is a good. You know, would would make for a good YouTube video. Just top five tools for editing and light, editing wildlife in Lightroom. So we'll make that happen.
2: Can I hire you to do my images? <laughs>
1: you don't do anything to your You don't have to do anything to your images.
2: They're all perfect.
1: I know. Light is always
2: perfect. <laughs> Man, I have not even touched that stuff. I want to. I just am scared to delve into it because i know it's going to take some time yeah i guess that's a good winter thing right
1: it is a good winter project yep for sure
2: the camera
0: raw in photoshop has really expanded in the past year or two a lot more more versatility that i find can work images through the system faster too
2: does that mean it's faster the camera Raw thing
0: i think just having more sliders and more tools that are specific rather than more broad application helps speed it up yep because images, you know, a certain image might only need two or three of the sliders adjusted. Um, so I, I appreciate that. Um, what's the right word? Well, it's more specific, but it's it's more detailed as far as what you can do to an image with the more tools that are on there.
2: Is that if hard that to learn? Sense. Because you've, like, for me, no, every time they to Lightroom, it's just introduce sliders. a new, is it in Photoshop? Camera Raw? Yes. Oh, Camera Raw. So that's different than essentially Photoshop. What
3: camera, essentially what right. Camera Raw does is it pulls it up in Photoshop, and it looks a lot like the sliders that you have in Lightroom, so you can do all your pre-adjustments before it like brings it into
2: Photoshop. And that's a non-destructive? Like, you always maintain the raw. It's not like doing anything. It's yeah. just showing you what those things have done before you bring it into Photoshop.
0: Yeah, my workflow is I'll open the raw in Camera Raw, it goes into Photoshop, and then it's exported as a 16-bit TIFF.
2: So, Mark, on, on, when you prepare an image, start to finish. So let's just say you have one image. You're going to take it through your process, and I just want you to average it out because some take long, some take short, whatever. Start to finish for your process, what would you say the average amount of time per image is?
0: Five minutes. Once it's on my desktop, Yes, once it's in so I access through bridge, once I see it in bridge to done, my guess would be five minutes an image. sometimes less some well, yeah it's such a hard thing to guess you think I do this so often, there are some that I might spend 10 minutes on.
1: but then there's some that you spend no time on, right?
0: They're all a few minutes.' Yeah. They'll, they'll take I do them individually, so I don't batch. As much as that's old school, I'm I'm old school by not batching.
1: No wonder so. it takes you six months to edit.
0: I take a lot of pictures. <laughs> Digital's not helping with that. I Take that many more <laughs> now. Well, that, it's so rare not to get a shot now. But there, it, we're also I feel I'm so much looser in in as far as not always composing as well as I would have historically on a tripod. I like the fluidity of of handheld, but my horizon's not always right because of that. That's another thing in post that can be quickly fixed. So no stress, especially on a 45 megapixel sensor. My horizon's off. That's no big deal. But all of that takes time in the images. And with raw images, they are not sexy when they're shot. They all need some kind of doctoring before they go out the door, just whether it's color or contrast, all the brightness. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about Raw is all that latitude where, you know, we know what we saw and we can recreate that in post. But that does take that time and patience. I think
2: we need to do what Ron says. I think somehow, some way we need to do some sort of a podcast, video podcast where we show. Because we attempted that once before with Jason and Ron. We were actually going to critique some images. and, And I thought I did a lot. And I'll say my images, if I am not done in 30 seconds... I'm not messing was, with it. So I didn't hear what your numbers were. Well, mine's 30. Jason's right on par with you. And I said, well, all you guys are about the same. But after okay. watching Jason and Ron, and I've never sat down and watched them before until we did this podcast, the the tools they use and what they achieve, I've never watched you do it, Mark, so I can't speak to it, but. I'm like, oh, man, I didn't even know you could. I mean, I know you can do that, but I've never seen the results from doing that. And after seeing them do it, I'm like, holy moly. I mean, there's probably tons of images that I have that I can't, I can make look pretty cool. I just have never tried it. And I really think that podcast would, or that sort of a, you know.
3: sure, I'm sure there's yeah, a
2: ton so. of them out there already, but for wildlife, I don't know if there's that many. So it would be good to do it.
0: Well you know, they're tools that we use that other other genres might not too.
2: I mean Right. Right. Well and then it's, it's interesting to see what you all would focus on too. You know, what's the main focus of this image and why? You know, those kinds of things would just be super interesting just from a perspective of you guys that are actually using the tools.
1: You have heard my last two weeks, so I'm all caught up. Except I've been photographing a bunch of people, which I don't like to do. But I am finding while I'm stuck at home, it pays better than wildlife. So I have uh, I've done a lot of that here recently, and that may be that may be good for in the near future. We'll just leave it right there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I don't know. I You had a comment on a text chain that we were running earlier, and you said you were doing some southern Wyoming elk. And Jason said, was that pronghorn?
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was not pronghorn. It was actually wapiti. Oh. Um, but it was way south Wyoming. I mean, further south than I've ever been in Wyoming before.
3: Wow. So pretty much Colorado. <laughs>
1: toward, toward In that general direction, yeah.
3: But not over the border. I understand. I understand.
1: No, because you would get COVID.
3: Correct.
1: So, <laughs> anyway, I did have a unique encounter, and you know, most hummingbird shots that I've seen that are that turn out just pristine are typically shot at a feeder with you know a, a fake limb attached to the feeder, so it looks like natural material or natural flower perfect light they this bird buzzed me i mean came right by my left ear and shot right down to these russian thistles and uh as as it got to the thistles it just hovered and i was like i was set up for this bull was starting to get cows up out of bed and so i was set up for that i was at about a thousandth of a second about 400 iso at f56 i left the aperture alone but i busted it up to 2500th of a second and then i i bumped my iso to 800 and at one point i think i shot 1600 iso to get it to the 120 2500th of a second but i got the best hummingbird shots i've ever gotten this thing was hovering and it was i just waited because it was going from flower to flower And I waited until I had one that was kind of facing perpendicular to me so that the bird would be, you know, exactly perpendicular. And as soon as it got to that flower, I busted off about 40 images and I got three or four, as you know, if you photograph hummingbirds. And the background was, you know, the thistle was far enough away from the grass that was behind it that it just gave this perfect tan bokeh and those images turned out really sweet
2: so i was happy
1: with that didn't you throw one of those on instagram i did yeah i threw one up just because it never happened before so i thought i would throw one up there but i uh you know i did get some great elk images that i was happy with but probably the the shot of the trip for me was that hummingbird just because i've never had that kind of success without any enticement whatsoever that thing just Buzz the tower and boom, just posed right there in front of me, hovering. So it was pretty neat.
2: We'll put a we'll put that picture in the show notes, but you can check Ron's Instagram if you want to see it right away. I'm going to put it on the Wild and Exposed Instagram too.
1: <laughs> because he was guilt tripped. No. No,
0: because it's fantastic, <laughs> and now there's a story behind it that that makes it even more exciting. I love it. Yeah, it
1: was a it was a fun shoot.
0: So, yeah, check it out on Wild and Exposed or Ron's
2: Instagram, or both, because there are different images on them. It's worth the visit. So I want to hear Jason's story, because I'm missing – every year I miss the elk rut, and I did it for so many years, and now he's been down messing around with them and actually had some interesting weather, right? So The ride home alone will take a while, but <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny – that ron brought up the
3: hummingbirds i actually had an opportunity to shoot some hummingbirds here and it was literally the night before i left to go to colorado to chase some milk around and very similar situation, shooting thistle and shooting some purple flowers and stuff and it's the first time i would shot hummingbirds naturally with natural flowers and stuff instead of you know hummingbird feeders and stuff so that was really that's uh, i've done it before with feeders but the challenging thing to shoot if you've never shot hummingbirds before and i had this image in my mind from a friend of mine julie julie argyle she shot this hummingbird photo where there's a lot of times when the hummingbirds are feeding and those that have shot them will know this that the they they kind of um they fight over who gets to feed on what flowers sometimes that then sure it's just a posturing thing it's a dominance thing but the one hummingbird will come in and bump the other one away and so that there's a, this split second of this interaction between the hummingbirds and she got this amazing photo where the hum- one humming bird is upside down the other hummingbirds on top above it and they're facing each other with their wings just in a really neat position but to understand what it takes to get that shot is just incredible because first of all you're more than likely shooting in a pretty low aperture and you've got to have both those birds to get them perfectly sharp in the exact same focal plane or very close and especially like ron was saying alluding to you know getting your shutter speeds up where you action so anyways i had this idea i was going to go out and recreate that image and i failed miserably but uh (laughs) she might have that on her page if you want to go check her her instagram out um julie argyle but uh then i left and went to colorado and i spent the weekend with my wife and my son over there um chasing some elk around and had a great great few days um the rut is definitely going and it was really exciting to get out and get um spend some time with some elk and as I alluded to earlier, I had uh, both my Nikon and my Sony, and I was pretty happy with the images I got from both of those setups. Uh, but the last day I was there, before I left, a very big storm hit, and it basically hit from Wyoming clear into – did it hit into Denver too? I think it did. I think it went clear down into – all basically all the way along the, the Denver – the front range there, all up into Wyoming and, and all across Wyoming actually – um, there was snow that I fought on the way home for, for quite a ways, but it made for some really good shooting conditions on Tuesday morning. And uh, I had to stick around and try to shoot that, obviously. So I was actually having a hard time driving away from that situation because I knew the the rest of that day and uh, this morning was just going to be incredible. And that absolutely turned out to be, as I have a couple of friends that were still over there shooting those situations. Uh, but as I headed home, uh, everything looked good. And I got up to Laramie and that's when the closure started to happen. So I was in my Subaru Outback and uh, this is, we are not sponsored by Subaru, but <laughs> uh, here's a plug for the Outback. I'm telling you what, man, I, I put that thing through the ringer. I had that thing. We went over some, some passes and cause I-80 was closed. I just was going to find my way home and I followed the GPS and it took me in places I've never been. And I probably never go again. I don't even know if I could find these places again. But I was at one point on about a hundred-mile stretch of uh, dirt road. It was going back and forth over the border between Wyoming and Colorado, and there was nothing out there but oil rigs and just flat sagebrush, uh, you know, prairie. And there was about a foot of snow on the road, and it was kind of slushy, muddy. And I thought I was going to get stuck. And there's no cell reception at all. So about halfway into that, I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm <laughs> I'm gonna have to lay this back seat down and actually sleep in my Subaru for the first time. Um, but fortunately it performed great, it, that all wheel drive and the clearance got me through and uh, my car was a lot dirtier uh, at the end of it. It was caked with mud. And it was funny, right before I left my son, it was my birthday over the weekend. And my son said, hey dad, th- your car is pretty dirty. This was before all this went down. And I said, "Yeah, I know, man." He says, "He said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to wash your car for your birthday." So, (laughs) (laughs) when when I got home, he looked at. He's like, "Oh my gosh, what did you do?" I said, "Well, you said you'd wash it for my birthday, bud." So, (laughs) anyway, he actually did. He actually took it and went today, tonight, and washed it for me. So he's a good kid. But, um, but yeah, anyways, I I made it home safe. I got home about four o'clock in the morning. And uh, what time did you you leave? Some of us. I, I left. There at 11 o'clock. So, what normally takes me seven hours to get home took me about 15 or 16 hours to get home. It was a rough, long afternoon. But, and then I, what's crazy is I finally got through all that and I got back up to I, I 80 at Rock Springs and it was still closed. So, I had to do more back roads and got to Evanston and it was still closed. So, I had to basically camp out in Evanston for a bit until they opened it back up and that's when I got home. But, anyways so it's been a it was an adventurous labor day weekend for me
2: was it that bad so. were the were the roads iced up or was it just there was just so much snow it's, falling it's the
1: exact reason that i love and hate the first snowfall of the year because you you get the images but then when you're traveling everybody over the course of the summer and spring has forgotten how to drive in the snow and so typically it's accidents that close everything down because they get the plows out but the accidents piling up and people sliding off and those kind of things had things shut down all across all across the state everywhere not just you know not just on the south where jason was
3: yeah yeah and the people people don't realize is i-80 is terrible for winter storms and they close it all the time because that wind is just constantly blowing so what happens is the the piles will get going and they'll still try to stay ahead of it but the winds blowing so much that the storms are good it just drifts more snow onto the road and just continues to cause really really bad conditions so there was some of that going on too i mean i was hitting areas after even evanston where there was some slick areas and slick spots where snow had been drifting and hitting on the road and then as it cooled down in the evening it froze some more so but what was really interesting is as I hit the Utah border, it's like the snowstorm just just hit Wyoming. It didn't really hit Utah, but Utah got a really a really bad windstorm. It must have just been one on the edge of the of the storm system or something. And we got some really high winds. And uh, here around my my area, my hometown, there's a lot of power outages, a lot of trees coming down on vehicles and houses and cars, and it's a uh, it's a pretty big mess. A lot of lights. Um, uh, city lights and stuff out in downtown salt lake and the ogden area and stuff like that so
2: been kind of an eventful couple of days for sure so tell us about what it was like shooting the elk in rocky mountain national park because i heard all these horror stories about oh they're not they're going to close this down or they're going to shut this off or we're not going to let people in or what was it like were you able to get into the park
3: you know i think everybody all the photographers have the same opinion about it Um, And I feel like, I think most of us feel like there's not good sound science behind their decision. It's more an issue of not wanting to deal with people.
1: Here's my opinion on it. Looking at it from, you know, several years, and and we've all seen the parks for uh, a lifetime. Hang on, I'm going to move my mic. Looking at it from several years, the parks have gotten crazy busy. And in the same way that if you watch the news, you see that people are less and less respectful of other people's privacy, other people's boundaries, the same exists in the park. I honestly think that Yellowstone is probably about two seasons away from being Denali, and the only way you can get in there is on a bus. I, uh, the people management, now this year was the anomaly. Of course, because a lot of folks were kept out of there, but the people management takes a, is so intensive that it is a true issue. Now, when I look at Rocky, I haven't necessarily seen the same thing because the vast majority of folks stay on the outside of those meadows in their camp chairs and they just want to sit and watch and they're videoing with their cell phones and they're getting great audio because there's bulls bugling yeah. everywhere and just make kind of a family time out of it. I've honestly not seen or experienced a lot of photographers pressuring animals that cause them to move off those meadows. Those elk are going to stay there. They're going to do what they want to do. People back off when they get close. And uh, I guess that's where I do agree. I mean, I know that the, the Park Service has issues with people management, and I think that that's... They, they say, you know, don't harm the tundra or don't pressure the animals or respect this, respect that. But I, I don't think those are, like you said, scientifically proven issues because those elk are used to being around people. And it doesn't bother them at all that people are around. They go on doing what they're doing. They feed. They lay down and sleep. If an animal felt pressured, they wouldn't do either one of those things. Yeah. You know, they'd be gone. So, in that respect, I think that they are they are blaming a group of people who's not necessarily responsible for an issue, and i you know I question those methods, but i do you know I do see that there are issues in the park that weren't there even five years ago, you know in some instances.
3: I'll add to that real quick um so I was there last year and I did see some things happen where, you know, people, the the average person that has a cell phone or an iPad or whatever, um, they did start to enter the meadows more and more. Usually you would just see, you know, guy, photographers with large lenses and that out in the meadow. But last year I started to see a trend of more and more folks with cell phones and iPads, you know, wandering out into the meadow too. And there was a couple of days where I did see a pretty large line of I'm sorry, um, tourists with cell phones and iPads out there trying to get images and videos and stuff with their cell phones. And I think that might be part of what's driving this is just the amount of people that are starting to enter the meadow. The thing that's hard is for folks like us. I mean, we live for that experience. And when you, when you have a situation where the elk are in the meadow, that, that time between seven o'clock and 10 o'clock is prime time. That is the best light. It's the perfect situation. And for most of us, I mean, closing the meadow down at 10 o'clock, it doesn't, I mean, it's almost like they're trying to do us a little bit of a favor by leave, by not saying it's all day, but from a photographer standpoint, it might as well be all day because by 10 o'clock, most of the time the elk are done doing their thing. They're going to be bedded down. If they're in the meadow still, they're going to be laying there, not doing much. And the light's going to be terrible. So unless you have weather or something like that, there's still some opportunity this year. Um, to maybe get some of that but it does dramatically change the dynamic of shooting the elk there in the park and uh you know there's going to be a lot of missed opportunities there's going to be some situations that you could have gotten in the past that you just won't be able to get anymore and what i'm afraid of is that now the situation i what's what's hard for me and this is just my perspective so please don't write in and <laughs> get too mad at me this is just my perspective but I really feel like all we see is a continuing situation where they take away more and more freedoms. They take away more stuff. We never get things added. We just get things taken away. And it's hard because I feel like this is our park. It's there for us to enjoy, and we need to do it respectfully. And I feel like the, the, the folks that were doing these things, for the most part, were very respectful. And they were obeying the rules and keeping the distance and doing those things. So I get there's a bouncing act there and it's really difficult. I understand that. But it's just hard for me to give up that that, you know, that three hours of, you know, perfect prime time to shoot those elk. And maybe, maybe the solution is the meadows are closed and you gotta have a photographer's permit to be in the meadow, because then they can, you know, you go on some kind of a draw system, they only allow 10 or 20 photographers a day to have the permit. And you just have to put in and get your permit, just like a lot of the, you know, like Denali does, or some of these other places. It would make more money for the park if you would know exactly who's in the meadow, and if there's a limited number of folks in the meadow that have those permits, then maybe that would work. And and only the people are going to put in for a permit like that are the people that are serious about wanting to get those images and have those opportunities. So I don't know. I had a lot of time to think about it over the weekend, and those are some of the kind of the thoughts that have come to my mind, but.
2: Well, yeah, I don't think you've actually said what happened there, so maybe you can just line it out because what I don't even know what they did. What what are the restrictions that they put into place?
1: It used to be yes. seven to seven. What uh, what used seven to, to be?
3: It was five in the evening until seven, seven to in five. The, morning. the yeah. meadows were closed, so the elk could have, you know, could be free to do whatever they want. But the funny thing is, a lot of times. The elk don't come in the meadow at that time. They're on the edges and they're out there by the people. And so that's where it gets hard to this, to the new change is Now they've closed the meadows till ten o'clock. So there's been some, I mean, there's been some smart elk things going on. Like right, like so, so anglers are still allowed at seven, but you if you if you're out there for any other reason, you're not allowed to be. It doesn't say you have to be fishing. <laughs> so there's a few of us that have. Thought it might be kind of funny to strap a fly rod to the back of us and go out and take photos. Obviously, we understand the intense the real issue there, and that's just going to create more issues. So, But, yeah, um, the way it reads is that you're allowed to be in the meadow from 7 to 5 if you are an angler. You're not allowed to be in the meadow between 10 and 5. Or, I mean, sorry, you're not allowed to be in the meadow until 10 o'clock if you're anybody else. So a lot of people will walk into the meadow, they'll walk down, down to the water the there's a creek that runs through the middle there in moraine um and uh you know people fish it people get in the creek and swim you know not swim because it's not deep enough to swim but play around in the water and uh, people go through walks to the meadow just all kinds of stuff there's a lot of reasons that people might want to be in the meadow but uh, that's what's happened this year that's the change that's the big thing that's really got a lot of folks down about uh the situation with the elk rut and, in rocky mountain
1: and the comment was that if that doesn't resolve the pressure on the elk, that they would just close it completely. So yeah. I think that's probably what's coming.
3: But it's Yeah, I would you imagine know, that's coming. I would agree with you, Ron.
1: I think for for us, for professional photographers, it's kind of like you know, the the ease of people going out and taking good images. I mean People are taking great images because the accessibility of good equipment has become more prevalent. There's a lot more people that have good equipment and are getting good shots. So if you want to be or maintain as a professional, we're going to have to find new spots. We're going to have to work harder. And we're going to have to work a lot harder to make sure that our images stand out be a lot more creative because there's thousands of the same image out there in some of these places. So I think finding places where we can isolate ourselves or maybe, you know, finding hot spots that other people don't have access to, I think that's probably going to be the ticket. And quite honestly for me, and I know Mike, you at least feel this way as well. I'm not a big fan of standing there with 150 other people and, you know, photographing those bears in the spring in Grand Teton, the 399 had four cubs this year, which was an anomaly. It's a something we may not see again. But there were four to 500 people there all the time. And I just, I felt bad for her. <laughs> I felt bad for those cubs. But that's just, that was just life in Grand Teton National Park. And they actually did a really good job of managing people. I thought at that point in time, I thought they were just going to shut it down. But I thought that they did some good things. And so I'll give them props there. But I, you know, I think we're probably because people have just gotten more bold. They're not educated on animal behavior. They're not educated on what is and isn't, you know, pressure to an animal. And so they just run out there with the the iPhone or the iPad or whatever and try to get these selfies or video on animals and they want to get as close as they possibly can and it does cause some issues for them but yeah it, it's unfortunate but I think we're just going to have to bite the bullet and work a little bit harder and find some different different spots Mark you were nodding your head there which way <laughs> it was going up and down when I saw it <laughs>
0: It's, you know, I've heard so many wonderful things and seen so many outstanding images from Yellowstone and Grand Tetons, and the landscape, the wildlife, the diversity, phenomenal. Personally, I've not been there. And this isn't to rock anybody's boat, but I have no no plan to go because there's just too many people. There's As as a photographer, as somebody who sells their work in wildlife photography, there's no harm in having an image here or there that lots of other people might have. But it can't be the norm. It's got to be the anomaly. And I find, and this is not an antisocial thing whatsoever, I love hanging out with other photographers and, and hearing stories and hearing about adventures anytime. But I don't want to be in a row like you suggested of multiple lenses taking the same image there's no point to that in in what I do and it can still be a magical experience I'm not knocking that either but in those group situations but it's so hard with human population on this planet what's going on there's just so many people in parks I can't speak to Colorado parks but I know in Canada budgets have been hammered and they just don't have the personnel to be out there to properly manage the amount of tourism that's going on nowadays in the popular destinations. So there's that, I can I can envision that boardroom difficulty. How do we deal with this because it's happening? It's unfortunate, and I'm I'm not saying it's the right answer. The right answer is to fund the parks. They're making buckets of money from all these international tourists, buckets of money, fund the parks with proper staffing, to manage this as well as possible they can't cover all the bases that's that is impossible the number of people um, wildlife that's near a road or crossing a road is choosing to do so in these places they're typically habituated they're used to seeing people they're they're not stressed by seeing people they may be stressed by a bunch of people with smartphones approaching them that's not acceptable that's education and that's where the name of the game is now with these these untold numbers of people visiting these high concentration areas. So educate the people, put more money back into the system. So there's enough staffing, not to necessarily find people, unless it's definitely warranted, but just to teach them why this is not the proper behavior to show. So that's where I'm coming from. But at the end of the day, I'm going the other direction anyway, not just the experiences I've had by going to, they're not necessarily wilder places, but they're less populated by people because Yellowstone's wild. You go off the road and wander. Not that I've been there, but I, you know, I, the size of it, if you go a few hundred yards, you, it's wilderness. I would just choose to go where there aren't as many photographers and it's a breath of fresh air. Um, and it's not a competition thing. But when there are only a few people somewhere filming this, it's, it's more intimate and does have unquestionably more market potential. And those opportunities are out there. The difference is, people sometimes there's there's less um, information on how to do it. It's not as easy. It's not as accessible. But the reward for me personally is higher because of the effort put forward for those images. So I I avoid those those situations and. You know there are some magnificent animals that you're seeing and, and photographing in these places, but it's just uh, it just doesn't do any good to have a hundred images of that animal that a thousand other people or, or even 50 other people, sorry have have images of. It's, it's, it's just not the right situation for the most enjoyment as a wildlife photographer enthusiast. But, but the other thing on another spin is if education is there, And there's enough conservation initiative in these national parks, they can have such a positive effect on a big population of people if they educate them and move them in the direction to care about these natural ecosystems and the environment. If the education is there, there's better education on the ground, there's better online support for that, as well as staffing. To make people understand or to help people understand what these animals are why they're relevant for this ecosystem and why this planet earth is so amazing they access so many tourists that they can move in a positive direction for what we're all so passionate about here on on planet earth so i mean i it's a it's a difficult battle politically i think to see more money go there but it would be great if if those tourist dollars were maintained In those systems to support that education and and yeah i mean the wildlife photography just like every other type of interaction in these ecosystems with more and more people getting involved you know if there's a lake that allows boating how many boats are allowed on the lake all these things have to be considered and and managed but um it's it's i i get the struggle i i feel it and it's it's a frustration you know if you even in algonquin park which is quieter in comparison but still i believe has a million people a year visit or approximately i'd have to google that to be 100 percent sure but you know you may be in a situation on a trail with an animal and people can come along walking their dog and talking and it's done but that you just move on you know but if you're dropped off by a float plane in alaska <laughs> with three or four of your closest most trusted friends to share some time with that's not going to happen so, That's
3: true. That's true. true. Just a lot. Like you said, I think it's an access thing for a lot of folks. You know what I mean? Um, absolutely. Not everybody can afford to get on a float plane and go to Alaska to have those experiences, you know. so.
0: But, well, or they do it less frequently. And and it's not to say they shouldn't go to these popular parks. They should. But it's also just recognizing, especially on weekends or at, at favorable times of year, what is likely going to be like.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But so. So I will say something real quick. And I mean, I'm not against Rocky Mountain at all. I mean, it's a it's an amazing place, and the park system in general. I understand, and you're right, Mark. I think they they need to put more money that the parks making the funds. I mean, I can't imagine they're not just making a ton of money with the entry permits and the fees and stuff. It's just how much of that's actually getting back into the park, and I, I I'm sure that's the issue. Um, but they do a good job in general. I'm not trying to dog on. It's just it's just a something that we're used to having. And it just feels like in all these situations, because of the challenges, we just continue to have more and more things taken away, more and more access taken away. And you know at some point, you know we've just got to do some things differently. and i don't I don't have the answers. I'm just an average Joe. Um, but I sure would I would sure like I would sure hope that the folks that can make some of these decisions are taking it seriously and considering the the voice of folks like us to to try to do what they can to help make it a better experience for everybody. So, anyways, interesting conversation.
1: <laughs> Mike's just okay. sitting back there, shutting up because he's well, up there photographing by himself. And, and there yeah. are
0: situations where you know I've seen them in different unnamed places, um, just because of the bureaucracy or the or the person in charge not necessarily want to deal with it, get shut down. I don't, you know, I'm not naming any places, but there are other places that are managed well, and and they are trying to figure out the best approach. But they're all yeah. different. Each case is different, and and. You're right. I mean, if, if it's a change that you that anybody doesn't feel is just the best option is to write a letter to the people in charge and, and diplomatically approach them and, and see what what can be done to uh, create a discussion just in case. I mean, from my point of view, if they're not aware of of these concerns, it may enlighten them somehow, may give them a different perspective that might or might not change things at the end of the day. But at least, they, you know, you've, you have the opportunity to share your your concerns
2: one thing you said jason is give permits for people to be out in the in the uh, meadow i think that's a cool idea but then how do you educate the 400 500 people that are surrounding there that meadow and they see you out there and they're like well if they're out there why can't i be out there well because you didn't stop and read the sign to understand that we applied for this permit 90 days prior six months prior we paid money for this, and we're out here to do a job. I, You know, I think it's all legit, and it would it would be a good system if there's a way that you could educate. I mean, I don't even think you could hand out at the entrance station a pamphlet and expect people to read it. Nobody's going to read it, right? few people will. So I, it's just like a, I don't know how you get the, I don't know how you solve it. You know I mean, it's, it's 100% population and loving our parks to death that is, that is, it. you know it's just i don't know how you get out the only way to get out of it is what i used to do in rocky was get as far away from every you know you still want to go there because the elk population is so big so you got better opportunities but i would gamble and i would just say you know what i may not get a picture today but i'm gonna hike in two or three miles and it's 100 percent a gamble you're not guaranteed True. anything but i'd much rather yeah. have that scenario than than dealing with the rigmarole. You know, I'm so cognizant of people seeing me do what I do, too. Not that I don't... I don't care. Anybody can watch what I do. I just don't want to give the wrong impression. And I don't think I do, purposely. But, no, but I'm not over there talking to them. I'm not over there saying, well, I did this because of this, and I did this because of this. And it's, the animal always comes first. I can't... You can't possibly you're, do that. You're so one you're, of
0: the most careful people that...
2: Yeah, that well, your best is bet is just to... But- not, but you don't
0: know what they're looking
2: at, right? You don't right, know where you can't. they're coming from. You can't, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and so many people are just so ready to, I watched it last night with some moose where, you know, you just had kids that didn't know what they were doing. And they were just following this moose, this great big bull moose, 20 yards away. You know, they have no idea. They just are having fun, but they have no clue. If I'd have known that's what the, I saw him walk in, And if I'd have known that's what they were going to do, I'd have said something. But how could you possibly know? And when I saw him, I was way far away with binoculars. So I don't know, man. It's just a, it's a tough, tough. Yeah. So
0: many things about it. If you hear the bugle, I, I hear the bugle off in the hills and I'll go that way.
2: That was Same a, idea. that was a tactic for me or, you know, and actually that's where I met Ron was, I yeah. would go to remote parts of the park, and I would just park and listen for bugles. And if I heard a bugle, I'd walk, you know. And I can envision time. that
0: you two walking in the woods, nice pine trees, and one of you peeking out behind the bark, and then the other peeking out, and you guys eye and eye meeting, and it's like—and
2: there were hearts, kindred that
0: souls. Up in the middle. That's, <laughs> a, that's
1: exactly how it happened, except <laughs> that it was around a cup of coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But that's a way, to, you know, just use your resources and, I don't know, there's ways to do it. It's just harder, it takes more time, and a lot of us don't have yep. that. It just, yeah, it's, I feel it's it, harder. I, feel,
0: I feel the pain, you know. There have yeah. been places over the years uh, uh, where I've filmed whitetails that have been culled, you know, moose places that have been culled, and it's done, it's gone, right? It's that, ah, but it was just, you know, for that reason, you know biological management because of population densities but you know this is a whole different thing i can't I'm not, like i'd be careful how i word this but with just so many people in in these accessible areas it's it's hard because they're so captivating these places and, the, and accessible and productive but it honestly is so refreshing to find a quiet place and and when you do research they're out there you can even find them through social media <laughs>
2: uh,
0: but <Shh>. but <laughs> there's no, you know they're not necessarily until you try it you don't know how productive they'll be and sometimes it's a failure but other times it's not and they don't have to provide as much material at the end of the day as these popular places to feel more productive because it's quieter to me so yeah. I definitely get, so, the, get the pain and so
3: so here's the challenge, you guys. So some uh, just some perspective from a guy that has to work a full-time job and try to chase his passion. You're absolutely right, everything you're saying. But for the average guy, they don't have the time to go and put the energy and re- resources into trying to find some wild bull elk that they can go photograph somewhere because they're trying to get the biggest bang for their dollar. They got a week's vacation – and they're going to go and spend that time trying to get as many elk images as they can because that's their passion. And they're not going to get any other chance to do that. And the reality is, if you're outside the park, you are hunting You're, or you're hunting with your camera elk that are hunted with a weapon at the mm-hmm. same time. And I promise you your chances of finding a bull, period, to photograph and get any good images and get any kind of behavior is slim to none so so, i totally hear what you guys are saying and you're spot on but i think we all have to remember there's this perspective that the average joe that wants to go out and do this passion chase this passion they don't have the time to do what you guys are referring to which is the right way to do it but you know how how can i how can i be successful if i don't have these opportunities you know what i mean no that's what
2: i was alluding to earlier exactly that i mean it's like you're you're the number of images that you're going to get if you're going to have to go off the beaten path is going to be, you know, let's say you shoot 100 good images in a, a weekend or a week or whatever. You might get 10, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. it is. It's a whole different ballgame. But I was always willing to do that. For me, sure. that experience far outweighed the – but I know I missed out, you know. And I, it used to kill me when I'd go by the that – big meadow and just know that there's this great, big, beautiful bull out there or several of them, and mm-hmm. I'm driving right by it because I just wanted a different experience. I was always torn. It's like, do I want to go get the solid 100%? I know I'm going to kill it out here. Or am I going to go take a big swing and hope that I hit something luckily yeah. out in the way? And I don't know. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, it's it's definitely... But I think that's going to separate out some people too, right? It's it's just like 100%. even hiking for it. You know, um, a lot of the moose that I've been shooting here in Alaska, it's not an easy gig, man. It's five miles at least hiking round trip. That's a minimum. You can do a lot more if you want. And what I like about it is it separates out the, you know, it's just, it's a natural separator. It's like some people are willing to, and it's funny. It's like, you can see a two mile mark. People put in two miles and I don't know what it is. This place <laughs> that I go, it just seems like you go, look, you go just past two miles and you are, there's still people, but not the people that are within this two mile block. So I don't know, mm. you know, I, I, I guess yeah. it's, you know, there's no, no answer. So so can I just give you some, just some
3: word of advice from myself. I'm, I'm kind of in that boat where, I don't get, I am in that boat where I don't get the amount of time that some of the other guys do. And so what I've done to Mike's point and to Mark's point is I've actually tried to do a little, I've tried to spend a little bit of time in the for sure things. And then when I feel like I've got some stuff that I'm happy with, then I'll go out and take some chances and go out and do some of those backcountry, go chase some bugles, do some of that stuff. And I've been very successful, well, not success. That's not what I'm looking for. I've had, I've been successful having good experiences doing that. And I think that's a good way to balance it out for the folks that are considering doing something like that.
2: Percent. Yeah, because I don't want to preclude anybody from any possibilities. I mean, it's everybody's park, right? And you should have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's yeah. a good approach. Go in and get the sure thing, following the rules or whatever it is, and then, you know, head out on an adventure and see if you can make it even better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a rabbit hole. (laughs) With and it's all this always this charismatic megafauna too, right? Because if we want to go shoot sage grouse, you know, it's basically us, right? There's
1: nobody else.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Or if you want to go shoot bullfrogs, or if you want to go shoot whatever, I mean, collared lizards, collared lizards, you're by yourself, (laughs) you know. So pick and choose your battles. Yeah,
3: that's true. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to get any, I just don't want it to be a downer. I, I, there's so many good things to do out of all this. Definitely. Don't get frustrated. You can be frustrated, but don't let it get you because it's, it's you know, there's nothing being mad, not going to fix it. Right. Right. So
3: just, I mean, I've gotten over it. I mean, it is what it is. (laughs) It's going to change the way I shoot this year. That's fine. That's all good. So I'll just work around it and I'll have more opportunities now to do more of that backcountry stuff and go do try to find some different opportunities. Right. So it's just, you know, you got to just make it. It's a glass half full.
2: Yeah. Yep. I've always looked at it that way, too. I mean, it forces you to think outside the box, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Sometimes if it works out. When it works out. (laughs) When it works out. You look like a hero, not a zero oh we wanna, man
1: we want to wrap it there
2: I don't know, so real man. quick real That's, quick what,
3: before before we wrap it before we wrap it i just i actually met um a fan of the show out in the field um steve boyce and uh i just wanted to give him a shout out and say thanks for stopping me and saying hey and i love it when people come up to me and say something in the field when they see me so please just remember or any of us i know all the same way if you see us out in the field make sure you stop and say hey um, you never know, might have a sticker or something handy to give you to, you know, it's for stopping by and saying hi, but we do appreciate it. It was great feedback. He wanted to make sure I I told him how to make sure I shared that information with the rest of you guys, that he was a big fan and he really enjoyed the show, really enjoyed what we were all doing. And so wanted want to make sure we were keeping it up and putting out episodes every week so he could continue to participate. So thanks, Steve. Appreciate that.
1: Awesome. And the other thing is, thank you all for tagging us in your images because, you know, a lot of you are tagging us individually as well as the podcast page. And everybody's doing some incredible stuff. It makes you want to just get out and up your game.
2: That's the hard part, too, right? Social media has just yep. made you like, oh, my gosh. This uh, <laughs> this standard shot is not going to... I I process images really quickly and I throw them on my phone and I'll, I'll use them for like trying to find the right image for social media. And I'm like, nope, 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 <laughs> nope. It's so hard to find the right image to put up there that hopefully would we'll just get noticed or be a little different. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Impressive.
1: So while the, the wild and exposed crew is trying to up, our productivity and the quality of our images. So up yours.
3: I knew that was coming. I knew it was coming. It's been a while. It's been a while. <laughs> oh,
2: that's funny. I <laughs> couldn't right. help that that it. You know, it, it,
0: there's been more every week. There seems to be more interaction with listeners, which is is. Definitely uh, something we appreciate on all platforms and and on Instagram and, and YouTube as well, comments. And, and for those of you that aren't aware more and more of our content is going up on YouTube. So if you want to watch our podcast, Instead of just listening to it, you can find it on YouTube. And make sure to hit the bell icon so that you're notified when we upload the next one for your viewing enjoyment as well. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Gonna make
3: it
1: someday Nothing's gonna get in our way We will be the biggest band in time Round and round the world we'll go